from NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you're one of the folks who finds Living on Earth on the Internet as well as public radio, some nature filmmakers would like to find you. As television markets change, including public TV, more and more nature filmmakers are finding an audience through the web. I've had programs on PBS. They air, and then they go away, and even I forget about them. But the website, you know, we're getting like 4,500, 5,000 visits a month. I think we'll probably hit about 60, 70,000 people by the end of this year. And um, that's a decent viewership in a decent PBS market. Yet what's cool is that people keep coming back. And people also keep coming back to the sleeper movie hit of the summer, The March of the Penguins, and more. This week on Living on Earth, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Since 1970, the federal government has been required under the National Environmental Policy Act to assess the impact of federal actions. In recent years, some activists have used this law to challenge the rapid expansion of oil and especially gas drilling in the West. This year's version of the energy bill passed by the House includes provisions to limit the environmental impact reviews of certain oil and natural gas operations. Proposed changes would affect assessments of individual drilling sites of less than five acres and disposal of wastewater from coal bed methane wells if states have already allowed it. These states include Wyoming, where Marjorie West raises hay and cattle on 13,000 acres in the Powder River Basin. A number of coal bed methane wells abut her property, and she says wastewater runoff with high levels of sodium has destroyed one quarter of her hay meadow and left much of her best grazing land covered with salt-tolerant weeds her cattle won't eat. Marjorie West, what's your opinion of efforts to limit disposal of coal bed methane wastewater from review under the National Environmental Policy Act? I think it is absolutely horrendous. To my way of thinking, there are not enough laws protecting the environment in place right now. And if these companies are exempt from what laws there are, it's going to devastate the land. How would you respond to people who say that the, uh, the National Environmental Policy Act uh, that requires environmental impact statements is, is often used as a stalling tactic by environmental activists uh, just to tie up vital energy projects? See, I do not believe this at all. I belong to several environmental groups. And we are not against coal bed methane gas development. You know, we realize our country needs the energy. However, we are for it being done right. Powder River has a very unique ecosystem. If much more of this methane gas water is dumped into Powder River, it is going to destroy that ecosystem. So what would you like to see Congress do about this? I would like them to pass retroactive, much more stringent laws, uh, require these companies to either re-inject the water, treat the water so that it can be used, and this can be done. You know, this water can be treated. And yes, it does cost these companies money to do it. However, right now, they are making more money than they have ever made in the history of the oil and gas industry. I think they can afford to take care of this water and do it so it's not a hindrance. 
Marjorie West has been a rancher and farmer in Spotted Horse, Wyoming, for the past 51 years. Thanks for taking this time with me today. You're very welcome. And now let's turn to Lee Fuller. He's vice president for government relations for the Independent Petroleum Association of America. Lee Fuller, now how do you respond to complaints from ranchers like Marjorie West that uh, rather than less federal environmental review, practices like disposal of coal bed methane wastewater should actually be more tightly controlled under the rules imposed by the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA? I'd say that if they look at the number of opportunities that they have to raise those environmental issues, they are more than adequate. There's probably at least two times in the planning process by the federal government, and then there's uh, opportunities at the permitting stage where their points can be raised. The purpose of NEPA is not to deal with minor events like this, but to deal with much larger ones. And I don't think that simply trying to keep expanding the role of NEPA is the solution. This House bill uh, would exempt the seven oil and natural gas activities from environmental impact assessments. Why is it necessary to uh, specifically exempt these activities from an analysis of their uh, impact on the environment? Well, I think it's first important to recognize that this is one step in a larger process and that these actions have gone through NEPA processes before they ever reach the stage that this section affects. They would have either uh, gone through uh, the process once at the point of the resource management plan and a second time the leasing phase. These are really minor actions that most likely shouldn't even be under the scope of the NEPA process because that affects major federal action. The reason why I think they've been identified is that there have been efforts to try to broaden the application of NEPA, in our view, principally to try to delay decisions on projects. And this would essentially say one or two reviews is enough. The permitting process on top of that is enough. NEPA is not needed a third round. I see then. So then those critics perhaps would say that this process limits the ability of the public to try to intervene in a, in a project along these lines that they think may not be appropriate. Well, the purpose of NEPA is to try to make sure that all these issues get aired and then the government makes its decision. That's been done prior to reaching this stage of the actions that are affected by this language so that there's been ample opportunity for the public to make their case and to have the government adjust the uh, requirements accordingly. Lee Fuller is with the Independent Petroleum Association of America. Thanks for taking this time with me today, Lee. You're welcome. Since the beginning of human time, people have traveled the waters of the world by drifting and paddling. But then centuries ago, when explorers set out to navigate the globe, they mastered a comparatively new technology, riding the wind. Now, once again, riding the wind is a new frontier of technology, but this time for space travel. The modern-day equivalent of oars and sweat is the chemical rocket, which we use to launch spacecraft like the shuttle into orbit, and then, for the most part, we drift. But last month, a privately funded mission, Cosmos 1, was launched, this time with sails designed to catch the solar wind. The expedition ended abruptly when a launch vehicle failed to fire properly. Yet the prospect of solar sailing and other new ways to power spacecraft still intrigues scientists. With me now is Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist, director of New York's Hayden Planetarium, and a regular contributor to our program. Neil Tyson, welcome back. It's always great to be back. Thanks for having me. Solar sail technologies sounds pretty amazing. So just how does a sail work when it's attached to a spacecraft? The Cosmos 1 sail is, I don't know if you, anyone had ever seen pictures of it, but in a fully deployed state, it's 100 feet across. Where these sails spread out like a daisy, each were maneuverable 
that you can so that you can change the angle just the way a person sailing on a sailing ship would change the angle of their sails. Of course, you have to be able to do that to control which way you're going. But this technology, which was simply large mylar reflective sails, was intended to be a demonstration of the pressure of sunlight. Yeah. So, what is the pressure of sunlight? I mean, people think of outer space being just space being a vacuum. I mean, that's what we learned in, in elementary school, that there's nothing there, but there is something there, apparently. Yeah, well, light moves through space. Of course, we see the sun from Earth, so that means the sunlight reached us through the vacuum of space. So what you do is you exploit that fact, and you can calculate how much pressure, how much little impulse you'll get from each of the photons of light that comes from the sun. And the sun emits a lot of photons of light. And as each photon strikes the reflective sail and bounces back off, that little recoil of the photon forces a response to the spacecraft and pushes it into another orbit. So the way you do this is you don't get into orbit around Earth and then line up your sails and then head towards Mars. That'd be too easy, actually, <laughs> if that's all it was. The way this works is the energy from the sun, you keep pitching the sails in such a way that the sunlight pushes on your craft into higher and higher and higher orbits until you get an orbit that's so large that it intersects the orbit of Mars and then you just go to Mars or you go to the moon or whatever would be your destination. So the drawback is it's slow. If you wanted to do this and get to the moon, it'd take you a couple of years, whereas ordinary rockets that we've known and love will get there in three days. So it might not be your first choice of propulsion for astronauts, but maybe you have a supply ship that carries food of high shelf life, <laughs> you know, like rice or breakfast cereals, things like that. You can send that long in advance of your trip. It'll land where you need it to land, and then you come in um, on your few-day trip, and there you have it. And so it's an important auxiliary tool for the exploration of space. Now... The standard technology to get something to space is to use chemical reactions, uh, burning uh, either liquid fuel or solid fuel or whatever. But once in space, there are no gas stations up there, Dr. Tyson. So how do we keep our spacecraft first powered up uh, to handle just all the electronics they have on board to do the things that they do? That's an excellent question. We, we take for granted that when you want to drive across country that you don't have to carry a tanker truck with you <laughs> to give you all of your fuel because there are places to stop and load up. You just have to take lots of money with you these days. Lots of money to buy the fuel <laughs> at $3 a gallon or whatever it's costing in some parts. Yeah. And so without fuel stations, filling stations across the solar system or the galaxy, you have to bring all the fuel you're going to use with you and hence this tremendous pressure on the frontier of space exploration to come up with an efficient fuel source, and chemical energy is just not efficient. You might remember the Saturn V rocket from the 1960s. It was 32-some-odd stories tall, and way at the top, this little place, that's where the astronauts were, and all the rest of what they were sitting on is basically fuel tanks, just to get them to the moon and back. So this is a problem, and it's a challenge, and so you have to be creative about this. So one way is you have solar panels. That gives you sort of electricity on board. That's what the space station has. But now if you want propulsion, you got to be even more clever than that. And the most efficient means of propulsion we know involves getting energy from nuclear reactors. Of course, that's the N-word, and there's a lot of 
uh, knee-jerk resistance to putting nuclear reactors in space. But let me just say that if you can imagine that you have people working on this to make it a safe technology so that we can continue our exploration. There's a whole branch of NASA that's tasked with just figuring out this problem. It's, it's called the Prometheus Project. So that's the next frontier in space propulsion. What form of space propulsion would you like to see in the future? I like the warp drive concept. I'd first seen it in Star Trek. I don't know if it predates that, but you, you are where you are, and there's your destination really far away, and you figure out how to manipulate the fabric of space and time so that the space between you and your destination is warped. And then you cut a hole through that warp, and then you, you basically tunnel from where you are to where you're going, bypassing the vast distance that is otherwise warped out of your view. And then you land where you are, you unwarp space, and you cross the galaxy during the TV commercial, which is what happened during Star Trek. And it would otherwise take you, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to make this trip that you can now do in just a matter of minutes. That's, to me, the most intriguing frontier of science and, of course, as well as engineering that I can't even imagine when that would be real, but it's fun to dream about because, in that case, the sky's the limit. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist and director of New York's Hayden Planetarium. His latest book is called Origins, 14 Billion Years of Cosmic Evolution. Neil, thanks for taking the time today. It's a pleasure to be here again. Coming up, oh dear, where have all the wildflowers gone? Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Let's face it, there's probably no more appealing creature than a baby white-tailed deer. The eyes of a fauna are especially friendly, so as the population of deer has exploded in the suburban eastern U.S., people have hesitated to limit their numbers, even as deer have been linked to the spread of Lyme disease. Now there's another problem that may put more deer into the crosshairs of hunters. They're being blamed for a sharp decline in wildflowers. From WNPR in Hartford, Connecticut, Nancy Cohen reports. It's a warm, sunny day at the Mianus River Gorge Preserve, which straddles the border between New York and Connecticut. Executive Director Rod Christie is standing on the edge of the preserve's old-growth forest. He remembers leading wildflower walks here 20 years ago when the plants were tall and dense. The understory vegetation was up to my waist when we were walking along the trail, and you just don't see that now. Now there's nothing when you're walking along. The preserve once had nearly 230 species of wildflowers. Christie says the increase in the deer population in the last two decades parallels a decline in certain wildflower species. Some species we don't see at all anymore. Um, some species we see rarely and they're small pockets. Some species we see but they don't flower and they aren't in healthy condition. Um, so what we wanted to make sure is that we didn't lose everything forever. In the early 1900s, there were hardly any deer in parts of the Northeast due to hunting and deforestation. Some states tried to bring deer back by restricting hunting, which worked maybe a little too well. Today, there are an abundance of deer in the region, and they're being blamed for decimating wild plants. Christie and his colleagues have set out to discover what would happen if deer were kept away from wildflowers. Christie walks through a stand of red maple, white oak, and hemlock. He stops at a seven-foot black plastic fence surrounding a half-acre plot. Christie points out purple trillium growing inside the fence. 
when I first started in this exclosure and set it up, I had seven individual plants. Now I have close to 300 plants. So that's a dramatic change. Not only are the numbers increasing, both trees and wildflowers are taller inside the exclosure than outside. Here's the wild geranium, you know, that's flowering in here. Trillium has gone by, but you can see the size of the plants and how robust they are. There's a basswood, a little basswood. That would be candy to a deer. Outside the exclosure, where the deer roam free, the plants are short and sparse. But the wildflower decline isn't unique to this preserve. Scientists are observing a similar trend in many parts of the country, in Maryland and Wisconsin, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, usually in forests near suburban areas where deer populations have increased. Richard Goodwin was one of the first presidents of the Nature Conservancy. He says deer have been feeding on the native flora where he lives in southeastern Connecticut for at least 20 years. I have a list here of uh, some of the things that I have observed that have been chewed off in flower and then not in flower. The 94-year-old botanist sits on a living room chair and picks up a lined piece of paper. In careful script, he's noted the nearly 25 species deer are eating at the Burnham Brook Preserve in East Haddam, his home since 1956. Lilies and orchids are the hardest hit. Wood lily is one, it's gone here now. I haven't seen it in flower. Ladies' tresses is another orchid, little white orchid that grows out in the fields, full bloom and then chewed off. Without flowers, a plant can't produce seeds, and without seeds, there are no new plants. Goodwin is worried about the loss of biodiversity, and he says with fewer flowers, the world would also lose a bit of its beauty. It's an emotional thing, and a lot of people would feel very deprived if they weren't able to go out in the woods, and they weren't able to pick a flower. And uh, if you have a diversity of flowers, it makes the whole thing much more interesting. Back at the Mianus River Gorge, Rod Christie tells me he doesn't want to lose the preserve's diversity of flowers. But right now, deer seem to have the upper hand. As if on cue, one makes a cameo appearance. <laughs> Has a deer coming up around the edge. <laughs> wow. That's a white-tailed deer actually looking at us right now, <laughs> outside the exclosure, fortunately. Looking at us with those big Bambi-like eyes, raising the question of what to do about all these deer. Some states, like Connecticut, have a long hunting season and allow hunters to use bait in some areas. Birth control for deer is still under research. It's illegal to trap and move them. At a nature preserve, hunting is perhaps the most effective method, but it's controversial. Christie says the least intrusive and most natural option is to use predators. We're trying to encourage coyote populations, uh, bobcat populations. Is it possible to reduce the deer population to a level that the coyotes could keep it under control? However the deer are managed, inside and outside the preserve, fewer of them could give wildflowers the chance to rebound. For Living on Earth, I'm Nancy Cohen in Bedford, New York. In 1936, New York socialite and dress designer Ruth Harkness, who once said she wouldn't walk a block in Manhattan if she could take a cab, set out on an impossible journey to do an impossible task. 
she traveled to the most rugged and remote terrain of China to capture one of the planet's most elusive creatures, the panda bear. She walked up to 30 miles a day in her quest amid the dangers of China's raging civil war. Winning the race to be the first person to bring a live giant panda to the West, she set off a national sensation in the U.S. upon her return. Joining me now is author and Living on Earth contributor Vicki Croak, who's written a biography of Ruth Harkness called The Lady and the Panda. Vicki, good to talk with you again. Oh, Steve, thank you for having me on. Now, how did she get into this? Um, obviously, a dress designer doesn't really set out in life to go bring back the first uh, live panda. She had always fantasized about visiting exotic places, and she fell in love with a man named William Harvest Harkness, Jr. You can tell just from that name his background. He was an Ivy League educated rich boy, an adventuring rich boy, and he joined in this great race, which was very hot at the time, to try to be the first person to bring a giant panda back to the States. He went over to China, spent two years there, and died very young, 34 years old, of throat cancer. And amazingly, at that moment, Ruth decided she did not want his mission to die with him and that she would take up his cause. Tell me more about Ruth Harkness. What was she like as a person, do you think? Very intriguing person. And what we know today from the few people who are alive to tell the story of having met Ruth Harkness is that she's a kind of person who would just light up a room. Very charismatic, very striking. Every man wanted to romance her. Every woman wanted to be her best friend. She had already transformed herself once before. She came from a small town in western Pennsylvania. And when she moved to Manhattan, she became a dress designer and a socialite, sought after for every party. She was a quintessential flapper. She said that there were only two things she hated to do— go to sleep at night, and get up in the morning. A lot of people were um, trying to get pandas in China. Um, some pelts have been brought back. No one had brought a live one back. And, and all these adventurers were men. How is it that a woman is able to succeed here? Um, and why, in fact, do you think, from your studying this story, do you think that being a woman perhaps gave her an edge to succeed? I even at the time, people began to say that she had not succeeded despite being a woman, but because of it. Many of the Western adventurers, all male, would come into a country and they'd lay out the maps, they'd hire porters, and they would direct themselves to wherever they thought the prize would be. Ruth Harkness took a very different tact. She came to Shanghai. She decided she did not want to work with fellow Westerners. She wanted to work with a Chinese partner who was Quentin Young, 21 years old. And she listened to what he had to say. He had explored in that area before. He spoke the language, and he told her he could bring her to where the pandas were. Okay. She goes to the edge of, uh, of China, way up into, towards Tibet, to look for these pandas. How does she find one? It's an interesting story. Soon... Uh, after they got to the mountains, the Chonglai Shan, they had three camps set up, and within days of being in the second camp, she went out with the with Quentin Young, the hunters and the porters. It was extremely foggy up at that elevation, which was probably about 10,000 feet. And that morning, they were hiking through the wet bamboo forest, soaking wet from head to toe, couldn't see more than a foot in front of them, and a rifle was fired, and... Harkness was petrified. She had given orders that no panda was to be shot. She was afraid of what was happening around her, but she couldn't see. It was absolute chaos and confusion. And then they all heard a baby cry, and Quentin Young ran over to the hollowed-out, rotted tree nearby, and he pulled out from that hole in his hands a tiny little black-and-white ball of fluff, which was a young panda. Now, 
originally, uh, the notion of going to China to bring back a live panda was, I gather, to bring back, you know, a big one, because they're giant pandas. So how did bringing back a baby panda fit into that vision? It's interesting. It, it solved a problem that a lot of people had thought about, and that is that bamboo is the diet of an adult panda. Also, pandas are rather large, uh, pretty ferocious animals. They want to be left alone. So all of the Western hunters who came in brought traps and chains and cages in order to subdue these animals they assumed they would catch. Ruth Harkness in Shanghai one night thought was thinking about the bamboo problem. How do you keep feeding a panda when you take it away from the bamboo forest? And she had an epiphany. And she turned on the lamp next to her bed, and she wrote down on a list, baby bottle and formula. And so she had with her the most important equipment she could have brought, and that is a means of feeding a baby panda. And as luck would have it, that is exactly what she got. So now how does she manage to get this animal across the world? I mean, one that's still very difficult to keep in the zoo and, and, and nearly impossible to breed. And, and why do you suppose that she was thus the first able to do this? Today, we just this week, we know that um, a baby panda was born in the National Zoo, and everyone's very excited about it. If that panda survives, it will be only the third young panda, infant panda, born in the U.S. to survive into adulthood. And that really highlights how incredible Ruth Harkness's accomplishment is, because she took her little baby panda from deep inside the forest between Tibet and China to Shanghai, then on a luxury liner across the ocean to San Francisco. She went from there to Chicago and on to Manhattan. And then she kept the baby in Manhattan in her flat, went from cocktail party to cocktail party, rode around in taxi cabs with him. With this and eventually baby panda in her arms? Yes, that it was a well-socialized baby panda. He went to the best parties and teas that New York could offer. Oh, my. And what we believe today is that she was just intuitive. She kept that baby on her body, basically, the entire time. She never let him go. She said she was going to learn how to raise a baby panda from him. And he told her when he was hungry, and she fed him when he was hungry. And then even later, once he had been placed in the Brookfield Zoo, I came across a letter that Ruth wrote to the zoo, and she said to them, I'm no biologist, but I think that this baby should not be fed, and he was being fed at the time, boiled vegetables exclusively. She said, I think he needs bamboo and also other, what she said, flinty substances. He needs to chew on something. And it's remarkable in this day and age to think that her, just her simple uh, logic and intuition made more sense than these zoologists who consider themselves experts in animal care. This story is what on page one, what, how many days running in New York City? It, she made the front page of just about every newspaper in the country from coast to coast for weeks. She was in every newsreel, on every radio station, and Time magazine proclaimed her capture a scientific prize of first magnitude. Vicki, this is a memorable scene, one that almost seems like a, a second turning point in the life of Ruth Harkness, that she takes a, a panda that she's captured in the wild back to the wild where she found her and let her go. Could you tell me that story, please? On her third expedition in 1938, she had in, in hand a very young panda that she named Susan, and her, Ruth's entire future would depend on her returning to the United States with a panda. She's in Chengdu, and she realizes that 
the valleys where she had been before are now empty of pandas. There's been a gold rush of other panda hunters, and they are hunting and trapping as many pandas as possible. Many of them, dozens, are dying along the way, either in the process of hunting them or bringing them back to Chengdu and keeping them in cages. And she becomes heartsick. Her original vision was that she would bring back mated pairs of pandas to the United States and that we would be assured that we have a population here. And what she's seeing instead is that too many pandas are dying, that they're not mating in the United States. And so she's sitting in a Chinese pavilion in the city of Chengdu with little Susan, and she makes an incredible decision, and that is to put her expedition in reverse, as she says. And she brought Susan back up into the mountains where she had been caught, and she sets her free. Vicki, tell me, to what extent do you think that the work of, of Ruth Harkness ended up being beneficial to pandas? Which I, would, I think you'd say that in the end that's what you care the most about. It's interesting to me that uh, the World Wildlife Fund, uh, Desmond Morris, and other historians have credited Ruth Harkness with making a tipping point in the history of uh, animal capture. And that is that she, she was doing her work in a time when men went into the forest and blasted away. She brought back this little baby panda that the world fell in love with. And she made the, pan- the world panda conscious. As one historian said, she did more for the giant panda that day when she hit the docks of San Francisco with Sue Lin than most wi- wildlife biologists can do in a whole lifetime. So I think that what Ruth did was pretty remarkable. And to the American public, it was an important point in time where they fell in love with an individual animal, an animal that seemed to them to have a personality and a right of its own to live. And so never again would it be considered romantic to go off and kill animals in the forest and bring back their pelts. Vicki Croak's book is called The Lady and the Panda, The True Adventures of the First American Explorer to Bring Back China's Most Exotic Animal. Thank you, Vicki, for taking this time. A sheer pleasure, Steve. Thank you. Without your love, I'm like a song without words, just like a nest without birds, without your love. Just ahead, the greening of the Internet. Nature films move to the web. First, this note on emerging science from Sarah Williams. The thought of slaughtering an animal makes you queasy at the sight of meat, but soy burgers just don't do it for you, you may have an alternative. Using new tissue engineering technology, researchers from the U.S. and the Netherlands have found a way to grow tissues from cattle, pigs, poultry, and fish. The scientists first isolate a single muscle cell from an animal and allow this cell to divide and form a tissue. They then grow sheets of muscle tissues on a thin membrane and stack the membranes together to form a slab of meat. Researchers can also grow the muscle cells on tiny beads to make processed meat, such as chicken nuggets or ground beef. Under the right conditions, researchers say cells can proliferate so fast that in theory, a single cell could produce enough meat to feed the world for a year. This cultured meat could be healthier for consumers than meat from factory farm-raised livestock, which can contain antibiotic-resistant bacteria, hormones, and unhealthy contaminants. Researchers say they can also manipulate nutritional content. For example, healthy omega-3 fatty acids, the kind found in fish oils, could replace the less desirable omega-6 fatty acids typically found in most meat. The team claims their meat has just as much flavor as what you get at the local butchers. 
It's the texture that's the problem. Meat grown in the lab is tough compared to the meat off living animals that constantly stretch their muscles. To get a more tender texture in the lab, researchers will literally have to find a way to exercise their cultured meat. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Sarah Williams. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924, on the web at KRESGE.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you go looking for shows that address environmental issues on television, you may be disappointed. There just aren't that many. Some environmental filmmakers are disappointed, too. They say much of nature television has become a kind of reality TV with fangs that shuns environmental controversy and scientific complexity. Until recently, these frustrated filmmakers had few outlets for the nature films they believe audiences want, but that's changing. Producer Guy Hand reports some are burning new paths to your screen thanks to that most unnatural of landscapes, the Internet. This is a whole wall of nothing but videotapes lined up, and each one is cataloged and archived. Um, Some of it is spotted owls, some of it is rivers, some of it is bighorn sheep. San Francisco environmental filmmaker Frank Green is standing in front of a wall of videotapes, hundreds he shot over a long career. This is tape number 24 from the bighorn sheep film. His latest film, Counting Sheep, follows the last bighorn sheep through the precarious heights of California's Sierra Nevada mountains. To study sheep in the Sierra Nevada, I mean, I couldn't ask for a higher privilege. It won the People's Choice Award at the 2004 Wild and Scenic Film Festival and is aired on public TV in the San Francisco Bay Area. But Green and dozens of filmmakers interviewed across the country say that getting environmental films on television is increasingly difficult. Green blames that in large measure on TV executives. They wouldn't know a tree if it fell on them. They have absolutely no connection or understanding of the natural world. And these are the people who are making programming decisions for the whole country. Commercial television programmers counter that shows containing the word environment get low ratings. They say audiences are interested in nature mostly as adventure and light entertainment, not conflict. Green disagrees. Because when I show my films to audiences, when I rent a theater, publicize a film, and fill a theater, people invariably say, why can't we see this on television? Filmmakers fear that even PBS might succumb to political pressure, softening or eliminating well-regarded shows like Nature and environmental documentaries like the recent Strange Days on Planet Earth. If we continue the current trajectory in the media, you won't be able to air natural history films because they all implicitly have this underlying underlying structure that says evolution was possible. And you'll have natural history films that have to be you know, given with the disclaimer that God created everything you're about to see. 
Green is so frustrated, he's leaving the business. And, and I'm getting out of it because I'm just tired of fighting people. Um, it would be one thing if you kind of beat yourself up to make a film, and then once you got the film made, if there was some reward, but it's more a case of beating yourself up to make the film and then beating yourself up to get anybody to see it. So I've just had enough. But as the aperture appears to narrow for environmental stories on TV, some people are trying to open up opportunities through new forms of media. The Green Revolution will not be televised. It's on DVD. That's the slogan for Suzanne Harley's new distribution company, Green Planet Films. Welcome to Eco. Harley has put together a party she calls the Eco A Go Go here in Corte Madera, California, to raise funds and awareness for Green Planet Films. Harley got the idea for the company three years ago, at a time when she was considering becoming a filmmaker herself. I thought that there wasn't enough wildlife films made because they weren't on TV. So I had to go to this film festival to see how I could become a wildlife filmmaker, only to determine that there was a lot of films already made, I just didn't know that they existed. And so I changed my mind right there in the audience, thinking like, okay, instead of being another person who can't get the films out, why don't I turn into a distributor? Harley now hopes to make her company a sort of green Netflix, delivering nature films to your mailbox. You can rent or purchase them via the internet. Although sales of her some 60 titles are modest, they've doubled in the last quarter. What really surprised us was um, the international buyers which probably goes to show that there's just not a lot of program available worldwide. We get emails saying, thank goodness we found you. You know, this is from Germany. Filmmakers who make environmental advocacy films, films with a point of view, predictably have had an even harder time getting their messages on the air. There's more oil in Anwar than there is in all of Texas. That's from the soundtrack of Oil on Ice, a film project that focuses on drilling for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Filmmaker Dale Girassi knows it's difficult to get films with strong environmental opinions on conventional television. That's why he decided to bypass the broadcast and cable television gatekeepers. With the help of the Sierra Club and others, he and his partners distributed Oil on Ice directly to viewers as DVDs. The market penetration of the DVD and DVD players is huge. It's unprecedented. Jirasi believes that DVDs can not only reach a large audience on their own, but can also convey far more information than a traditional film. Our DVD has a number of special features, special video features, in addition to the one-hour film. There's the four-hour video. There, is, uh, there are interviews with some of the people. There are, uh, there's music. There are kids talking about the issues. This is a web-enabled DVD and allows you to launch directly to uh, web links, so it really is ultimately an activist toolkit. Some environmental filmmakers see so much potential in this new digital media, they've abandoned conventional filmmaking altogether. Academy Award nominee and Chicago filmmaker David McGowan has given up TV documentaries in favor of web documentaries or webumentaries. I've had programs on PBS, they, they air, and then they go away, and even I forget about them. But the website, you know, we're getting like 4,500, 5,000 visits a month. I think we'll probably hit about 60, 70,000 people by the end of this year. And um, 
that's a decent viewership in a decent PBS market. Yet, what's cool is that people keep coming back. Not only do McGowan's web documentaries live on and evolve, they allow him to focus on the kinds of subjects that cable channels like Discovery and National Geographic might view as too small, too tame, or too technical. Their programming tends to have the most dangerous snake or the most poisonous spider, but a lot of stories that are around us every day aren't getting told. I can't go to Java and, and film the pygmy rhinoceros, and I can't go to Rwanda and do gorillas. So what I've done instead is to look around me and find out what's spectacular in the animals that are here. So that's when I, I thought, frogs. With his initial webumentary, MidwestFrogs.com, McGowan still takes his cameras into the field, but focuses on creatures close to home. At first, you know, I'm like anybody else. I thought a frog was a frog. And uh, this would never have gotten played on TV. What we're doing is looking at some tiny creature like a peeper. But there are people that study the peeper and have found out there's all sorts of communication going on in the peeper world. And it's, um, it may seem insignificant, but once you start looking at it, it gives you um, stories about you know, where animal communication comes from, where communication in general comes from. There are a lot of great stories. They're just right underneath our, our noses. And um, I think we really do the public a disservice by not focusing more attention on that. And that's why this whole thing with the internet is, is just so incredible. McGowan's web documentaries include film with sound, interviews with scientists, and lots of background information, including relevant web links. His audience includes school children in Denmark, academicians in Ecuador, and conservation groups in Africa. For me, I mean, for me as a filmmaker, none of my programs showed globally before, and, and that is kind of cool. McGowan thinks the ability to get environmental information to viewers via the Internet is going to explode in the next few years. At first, technology restricted his films to a few seconds of postage stamp size footage. Two years from now, I think it's going to be the entire screen. It's kind of like a mirror of the, uh, the movie industry, you know, and the turn of the 19th century. You had to look in these little Nickelodeons. You'd put in a nickel and you saw a little clip. Ten years later, they were doing Birth of the Nation on, at, at theaters. So I think uh, the technology is just going to continue to improve. It's going to become a a major alternative to broadcast. Like a frog's call, it's all about communication, perceiving the world and communicating that perception to other members of the species. Frustrated environmental filmmakers say that's all they're trying to do. If they can't broadcast a varied view of the environment on national television, they'll do it somewhere else, like the internet. After all, even a frog knows that there's an evolutionary advantage in speaking your mind. For Living on Earth, I'm Guy Hand.
There is one nature film that's making a surprise splash in theaters these days. March of the Penguins is a documentary by filmmakers who spent more than a year tracking the birds along their seasonal migration across Antarctica. And although the journey itself is a miracle of science, it's the story of just two penguins that has captured the hearts of summer moviegoers. In the harshest place on earth, love finds a way. This is the incredible true story of a family's journey to bring life into the world. And here to talk with me about the stars of the movie is Lauren Dubois. She's assistant curator of birds at SeaWorld in San Diego and is a big fan of the film's Emperor Penguins. So much so that you've seen the movie twice. Is that right? That is correct. And I'll probably see it a third time as well. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you think is the appeal of this nature documentary versus others in the past? Uh, I mean, I'm told that in the theaters where this is playing now, it's actually outselling blockbusters like The War of the Worlds and Batman Begins. I mean, how do you think it is that a nature film is making such a, an unprecedented showing? Well, of course, working with penguins, I can always say penguins have a big appeal. But I think really the life history of the emperor penguins is so fascinating. And because they're found in such a remote area that nobody has really heard the story before. So penguins, a lot of people equate to looking like people as you see them. I mean, really, one of the first opening shots of the movie is you see these figures walking along the ice, and they look like people walking along a trail. And when you get up closer, you realize, my goodness, these are not people. These are animals and beautiful penguins making this tremendous trek to go and find a mate, to breed, to have chicks. And it's something that in a way, I think we can all sort of appeal to. We all want some sort of companionship. We all want to be, you know, in a large group of people sometimes. And I think that's one of the appeals. And when you have all these other movies that, you know, have all these big flashy bombs going off and things like that, you have something that's very simple and very, you know, kind of back down to earth and take a look at something that's just wonderful. We have another clip from the movie we'd like to play now. It is March. Summer is over. And another long polar winter is about to begin. The birds have been feeding in the ocean waters for three months. Now, their bellies full, it is time to find a mate. Lauren Dubois, what does it take for these penguins to find a mate and start a family? Oh, it takes a tremendous amount. Um, they have to, one, travel almost 70 miles to their breeding grounds. And that's a very long walk or a very long, long toboggan. And once they get there, they have to find the perfect mate. Females are actually looking for a male that is fairly large and is going to be able to sustain, you know, close to two months sitting on an egg. And it takes a lot of, you know, sort of competing and looking just for the right mate to be able to know that that bird is going to be able to survive a very harsh winter while she takes off. And when she comes back, she's going to be wanting to have that mate that's going to come back and help her raise that chick. And the biggest guys win. And the biggest guys win. Isn't that unusual that, you know, instead of looking for that slim, trim Mr. Muscle, they're looking for the rather chubby guy that's going to be able to sustain an entire winter in harsh conditions, 100-mile winds, you know, minus 50 degrees. So, yeah, she wants that big, uh, the big portly guy. <laughs> and there's this moment in the, in the movie where the Penguin family is finally together for the first time, and I want to play a little bit of this right now. The couple has found one another. The mother sees her chick for the first time. And at last, the family is together. 
Lauren, what are the images you remember of this scene? And uh, I'm wondering, what might this scene tell us about the species as a whole? Well, it's funny because I can see that image and that whole scene very vividly of where it's the recognition of the chick and both of them are sort of recognizing, yes, this is, you know, what we've sort of been, this is what I've incubated and this is why you came back. And there's this chick and the chick is just beautiful. You can't imagine how beautiful these chicks are. And it goes out and and who knows, in five or seven years, that chick's going to come back to the same area and do the same thing and start the whole cycle over again. It's just incredible. Lauren Dubois is Assistant Curator of Birds at SeaWorld in San Diego. Lauren, thanks for taking this time with me today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure.